Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, it's Jack from Cultaholic back again with Matches of the Month, this time for October. Um, I went to another live wrestling show this month, I'm making a dangerous habit of that after uh, AW and Wembley, and then North Wrestling, the, my local promotion here in Newcastle, their biggest ever show in Thunderstruck, uh, I'm, I'm hitting about a one a month average, which is great. Um, but as well as live wrestling, there's also lots of shows which I watched not in the same building as they took place. And that's left me with a host of great bouts to talk about altogether. This is October's Matches of the Month. I'm not nervous to wrestle the greats. Brian Danielson, no, no, no. I'm nervous that Brian Danielson won't even make it to the match. Brian Danielson, Zack Sabre Jr. now takes on a second life, bigger than it would have been the first time, because now we've all had over a year to chew on it, to think about it. There's a reason why this is one of the matches that I want in my last year as a full-time wrestler. There is nobody in the entire world that wrestles like Zack Sabre Jr. In 2023, Brian, I end your career. <laughs> yeah, I think him saying that he's going to end my career is a uh, is a recent thing, but I'm not ready yet. The idea that the best really does bring out the best from the best is paramount to this matchup, and I think one of the reasons why Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. is on a whole other level. Many have said Zack Sabre Jr. can beat Dragon in a technical match. So if Dragon can put Sabre Jr. behind him, it will be a great first step on that journey home for Odysseus. One thing that I think he lacks is a desire for violence. I like feeling the pain. I also like feeling when other people are in pain. And that's beautiful, and that's poetic, but ultimately it's gonna be a very violent run-in for Brian Danielson, because there are a lot of people out there who wanna have that match, who wanna make their mark on the man who once was considered the best wrestler in the world. He chickened out last year. Well, this year it will happen. AEW, make sure it bloody happens. Zack Sabre Jr., the best technical wrestler in the world. Let's go back to the start of October for a massive AEW show. Yes, we are talking, of course, about AEW Wrestle Dream. A lot's been said recently online about AEW's product, its weekly TV product specifically, and how it all seems to be kind of getting overcomplicated or maybe falling apart a little bit. Losing momentum, certainly. Uh, and that's something that, sadly, I would I would agree with. However, a common theme is that their, their big pay-per-views still can be relied upon to knock it out of the park. And no match was more uh, evidence of that than Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. This one was so, so hotly anticipated. Two men widely regarded as the two best technical wrestlers of the modern era. Um, also, by the way, I didn't realize this until researching this episode of the podcast. This could actually be seen as a rubber match as well, this match at WrestleDream. That's because, according to cagematch.net, they'd wrestled twice before. Um, Brian beat Zach on a UK indie show called Wrestling in Coventry back in 2008. Zach got his win back a year later on at the 16-karat gold tournament in Germany. But despite this being technically their third singles match, it really felt like the first chapter of something to me, rather than the third chapter. I mean, it's the first one on this scale, obviously, being seen by this many people. Um, I don't know if we'll actually see a rematch anytime soon, given that Brian already has a huge rematch set up with Kazuchika Okada for Wrestle Kingdom next year. But um, I really, really do want a rematch to happen between Brian and Zach, because I thought this was absolutely superb. 
As for the match itself, this was absolutely superb, guys, in my opinion. Uh, highly technical matches are a weird one because they can easily lose the crowd if the crowd aren't particularly invested or maybe if the work's a little bit loose here and there or if the pace dips too much. Um, everything here, though, I think was perfectly balanced to keep the crowd enthralled in a real, what was like a real chess match of a wrestling match. Uh, it's really clever as well what they did because I'll try and explain my thoughts here. They both do very intricate stuff. That's the hallmark of this match. They're both tying each other up in knots, countering. It's a real game of one-upmanship. But it's also de like designed to kind of make it obvious to the crowd what they're doing. They're not just doing secret little holds here and there that you've really got to scrutinize the match to, to notice. They're making everything very obvious, as a wrestling match should be. I can't think of another match I've seen of this of this technical highly technical style, where it's so finely balanced between the intricate mat work, but also keeping the story simple enough to have the crowd invested. It really skirts that really difficult line, and it's two absolute masters at doing so. I found the finish quite interesting because Brian won, of course, by going to his more 2010s sports entertaining style, the the running knee and the, the yes kicks and all that stuff, which perhaps protects Zach a little bit, because even though he lost the match, he didn't lose it in this technical game, as I say, of one-upmanship. He lost it to Brian going kind of WWE mode. And, and on the whole, I, I thought this was just fantastic. As I say, it felt like the first chapter of something, and, and I really do hope I'm right, because I could watch these two wrestle all day. So I'm going to level with you. I'm going to be real honest. This isn't as a personal thing between you and I, you know, Hangman Page, Swerve Strickland. Quite frankly, you could have been anybody, but it just happened to be you in the position that I want. I make an enemy out of somebody every single day of my life. And that's what drives me. That's what fuels me to want to motivate myself again the position that you are. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it from you. I am going to take this position from you this Sunday, October 1st at Wrestle Dream. Oh, and by the way, it rains an awful lot in Seattle. Next up, another match from that same show. Hangman Adam Page versus Swerve Strickland. When I swerve, when I drive, when I swerve, when I drive. Right. Um, I love hometown stuff, hometown reactions in wrestling, big unique things that occur because someone's in a particular environment. Uh, CM Punk's 2011 Money in the Bank entrance is still probably my favorite single entrance of all time. The MJF stuff, when he was a heel, but he was in Long Island, they, and they still treated him like a babyface, that was... Really, really funny and elevated the shows. And the Bad Bunny stuff, for another recent example, in Puerto Rico. I, I love all that stuff. This was uh, another example of that to me. Like, Page versus Swerve would have still been an excellent match in a different environment, but the timing and the location of this one really made it something special. The, uh, the Seattle crowd realizing not only that this is the guy they want to root for, but this is his moment to, to really beat someone higher on the card. Uh, and you just felt it as he came down with Prince Nana doing that dance as well. But Swerve remaining steely-eyed and really focused as he walked down to the ring. It was really good. I don't want to focus entirely on Swerve, though, whose, whose performance was magnificent. But uh, I don't want to diminish Hangman's role either. Because it must be tricky when you're usually a valiant babyface being booed out the building. But he absolutely, excuse me again, he absolutely played his role to perfection. Um, also, I think this match made it apparent that... If we didn't know already, Swerve absolutely has that star factor. I think we knew that or suspected it anyway, but this is the match where I'd say it was most obviously apparent. Yes, he had to cheat to win, but I think that's fine. Um, one thing that I do disagree with maybe is the booking afterwards. Not that I thought it affected the quality of this match, which is still one of my favorite matches of the month, but I'm not sure how I feel about the feud continuing to this point at the time of recording. Like, I, I would have let Swerve get away with this win for a bit. You know, I assume that Hangman's going to get revenge in brutal fashion, especially since the whole home invasion angle and everything. He kind of has to get his win back. But I'd have gone maybe a different route, maybe kept that rematch on the back burner with Swerve continuing to avoid Hangman to duck him as he progresses up the card and beats more big names. And then Hangman, once Swerve is established fully, then Hangman can come back for his revenge and then they can go into the more personal stuff in the feud. But they seem to have... In my opinion, at least, they seem to have rushed it anyway. But 
I don't want that to take away from the match itself because I absolutely loved it, both for the match quality, which was fantastic, really strategic, Swerve using every trick in the book to try and, you know, try and defeat the man who is on paper stronger than him, but, like, getting away with it as well due to his cunning and due to the support of, of this raucous hometown crowd. Um, and, and, yeah, I loved it for that. I loved it for the atmosphere. And, yeah, two for two out of Wrestle Dream matches. I thought, I didn't think it was, like, a show where every single match was amazing. That would have been insane. But I thought the big matches really paid off in spades. I've waited to be in the main event of an AEW show for so long. My whole entire life, I never felt good enough. There was always a voice in the back of my head saying, you shouldn't be here. You don't deserve any of this. But like I said, the only time I felt validated was when I was TNT champion. Then you got a guy like Christian Cage. He's got the one thing that made me feel like I meant in this whole entire world. I don't care, Darby. I'm just cementing my legacy. The main event, Christian Cage versus Darby Allen. Two out of three falls for Christian's TNT Championship. Oh, I don't know what to think of this match, really. Look, I did enjoy it. It was a great match. Uh, it, was a, it was a big moments match, wasn't it? But also legitimately at times hard to watch, which I guess is what they were going for. The ring step stuff especially. Like, everyone's going to now remember those ring step spots. Uh, uh, then the exposing of the ring, Nick Wayne's heel turn, and obviously after the match, Adam Copeland's debut in AEW. Um, but despite all the different big moments peppered throughout this, the thing that stands out in my mind are the ring step spots. Um, so I think, what order did it go in there? Christian threw Darby off the apron and kind of missed the ring steps, then suplexed him onto it on the ring steps from the floor, a brutal one. Then I think it came out later, didn't it, that Darby told Christian, no, 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 let's do it properly, come on. So they go back up on the apron, and Christian just absolutely drives Darby down onto the steps below. A horrible-looking spot. It looked horrendous, and it, and it probably was as well. Really terrifying stuff. Wrestlers are weird. Um, this wasn't like the best wrestling match of the month or anything, but as a sheer spectacle, I can't think of a match that stands out more than this one. The two out of three falls stipulation I thought was used really well too. I think it's always good when each of the three falls is memorable, and that was the case here. Uh, the first one was obviously Darby getting a roll-up, using Christian's infuriating heel sleeveless turtleneck to, uh, to trap him in this pinfall. Then there was a count-out after all the ring step stuff I've just talked about, evening the score at one fall apiece. And then Nick Wayne's heel turn resulted in the in the third and final fall, didn't it? I'm not sure what to think of Adam Copeland in AEW yet. Uh, there's been like there's been an awful lot said this month, as I said in the intro about AEW kind of losing its way. And, and again, as I said, I, I think unfortunately I have to agree, mainly because it, it feels like a totally different. If you look back at the early days of AEW, nowadays its identity is so far removed from when it first started. It's it's very bloated. There's way too much going on. Yes, they've had these unfortunately timed injuries to various top talents. But then you have people who should really be showcased more and have kind of had the first half of a push and then been abandoned and they and they sit around doing absolutely nothing for months. And, and that's something that I don't think the signing of Adam Copeland necessarily helps at all. It's not as bad as the Ric Flair deal, though, which baffles me. Anyway... The point I'm making by bringing this up is, despite all the issues with AEW, the depth of talent they have there is still staggering. So their big shows do still work out well in the end. Uh, there's been several frontrunners for pay-per-view of the year from AEW, but I don't think the long-term health of the company depends on that. I think that depends more on a consistent televised product, which they very much used to have, and now I'm not so certain they do. So we'll have to monitor that and hope that AEW gets back on track week to week. Right. Oh, for God's sake. Let's talk about Will Ospreay. Bound for Glory, the show with Impact Wrestling's highest ever Dave Meltzer rated match. Yes, this uh, this Will Ospreay versus Speedball Mike Bailey match is now 
the highest rate of Meltzer match in, a, uh, in Impact history, surpassing the legendary five-star 2005 triple threat between Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels, and AJ Styles. So let me just say straight off the bat, even though I really enjoyed this match, I can't agree with it being looked upon as the greatest match in Impact history. I, I don't think it'll have the same lasting legacy as that uh, that 2005 triple threat. That's not meant as an insult. I just think that Will Ospreay especially, but also Speedball, they have so many great matches of this type that I don't know if it stands out as particularly unique to me in 2023. Whereas back in 2005, that triple threat was legitimately groundbreaking. So, and it kind of made the company, didn't it, as well, arguably. Um, so, but this was still like really good stuff. I just don't think it changed the game in the way the previous one did. Um, but I don't want to diminish what Speedball and Osprey achieved here. They actually, back when I was working at WCPW, they actually had a tournament match in the midst of our World Cup thing we did. Uh, and when all was said and done, that was one of quite a few matches looked back on as some of the best in our promotion's history. You had like people saying, was it Osprey Speedball, Osprey Martin Kirby, Cody Rhodes, Kurt Angle. Uh, also, genuinely, I'm not even joking, Joseph Connors versus Martin Kirby, the match where Pachiti turned heel, was a brilliant match. Um, the two guys involved are obviously great wrestlers, but the Pachiti heel turn got a huge reception as well, a huge reaction, I should say. Um, but out of all of those matches, weirdly, Osprey Speedball is the WCPW, you know, quote-unquote, greatest WCPW match of all time that I remember least. Uh, not because it wasn't any good, because it was very good, I assume, but it was in the middle of this long, tiring World Cup tour we were doing. So I was probably half asleep when I was watching it. I can't really remember watching that match, which is a real shame because, as I say, people still talk about it as one of the best matches that we ever put on. And then they had this match in 2023, and I thought, oh, brilliant, I'll get a chance to see Osprey versus Speedball. In fact, it's years later, they'll probably be even better. And then I had to quickly realize that this match wouldn't fill the gap that missing that previous match or not remembering that previous match would uh, it's not going to fill that gap at all because they're different wrestlers now, especially Will Ospreay. So I'm just going to have to go back and watch that WCPW one. This this won't have been very similar to that last match. Uh, Osprey now, you know, that last match in WCPW was two high flyers going at it in a, in a kind of how Brian and Zach did a game of one-upmanship technically. They were kind of having a, a one-upmanship in terms of high-flying, a, a contest of one-upmanship. Uh, this time... Osprey is such a different wrestler now. The more dominant favorite here, the, the heavyweight of the two, the New Japan main event star beating Mike Bailey down and trying to cut off his momentum all the time. And, you know, whereas in the WCBW match, they might have been evenly matched, here Speedball is very much the underdog. He's very much fighting from underneath. But I think it really works, though, because the impact crowd, well, any crowd always naturally gets behind Speedball because he's that exciting and his moveset's so brilliant. Whereas uh, Osprey has now learned how to be more vicious these past few years. So even though he's not nominally a heel in Impact Wrestling, he played the heel role in this match very well. The Impact crowd very much got behind Speedball. Um, and I really liked it. I don't know if I was quite on board with it as much as a lot of people seem to be. Um, I, I don't know if it's going to be one of my matches of the year contenders when all is said and done. But I do have to admit that the final third was absolutely exhilarating. Uh, some of the stuff they did was outrageous. People who, right, so it was, a lot of it was kind of choreographed, you know, as you'd expect from a match between guys who can do the things that these two can. And people who don't necessarily enjoy overly choreographed wrestling might not be a fan, but I think this match specifically was still grounded enough in the feeling of a real struggle, a real contest, that at times it, it allowed for, it justified the more, more kung fu movie choreographed stuff. Um... So yeah, I thought I thought it was fine for what it was um, in terms of realism. And I thought as a match, it was wonderful stuff. As you'd expect looking at the two names involved. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. My name is Will Ospreay, and I am on another level. I've been at the top of British wrestling close to two decades now. The best wrestler in the world right now, Will Ospreay. Let's find out, Will. Let's find out. So New Japan Pro Wrestling's Royal Quest in the Copper Box in East London. This was main evented by a match that I saw the build-up to live because at All In Weekend, when we went to that Rev Pro show in the same venue, the Copper Box, I saw Osprey beat Shingo Takagi in the main event, then get called out by Zack Sabre Jr. for this match, and then obviously Zack went away, and then Jericho beat up Osprey. Um, great stuff. Osprey beats Jericho at Wembley. This is kind of Osprey's next big match in terms of at least in terms of that title he's carrying the uh, the UK the IWGP UK Championship as he's christened it. Although I believe it's now been smashed by a hammer by David Finlay in New Japan. Boo! First of all, Osprey versus Zack. I thought this was an outstanding match, but I've got a bit of a weird criticism in terms of its structure. It's like the first half of the match and the closing stretch of the match were exactly the sort of match they wanted to have and exactly the sort of match it should have been, especially since this was kind of built uh, and built around the idea of these two being like the pinnacle of British wrestling. It was kind of a hybrid of both men's ideal match type. It was technical. It was uh, it was fast-paced at times as well. It was both men trying to establish the superiority of their style within a British wrestling framework. This was as much a Zack Sabre Jr. match as it was an Osprey match. But there was a bit in between. There was a bit kind of, I want to say, like maybe the third of the four quarters of the match. So the first quarter, second quarter, really good stuff. Ending stretch, fourth quarter, brilliant. Third quarter gets a bit weird. Because there was a bit there around that sort of point in the match where it became more of a New Japan-style main event, a modern New Japan-style main event, which you could argue is Osprey's style these days, but he kind of went, he kind of fell on that. And it was, it felt weird because what happened in that third quarter of the match, I don't think there was much bearing it had on the on the action around it before or after it. I don't think the, it felt basically like a New Japan main event finishing stretch was just shoehorned into a perfectly fine existing match where they like they ran through a full New Japan style finishing sequence and everything. Osprey wins it, hits the hidden blade, hits the Stormbreaker, Zack kicks out, and then they go into the real finishing stretch of the match, which I much preferred to this false finishing stretch. In fact, and they didn't like they didn't carry on as if nothing had happened. I suppose they sold a bit, but the stuff after the New Japan main event stuff was out of this world. It was much better than the New Japan style finishing stretch. If this is any, if any of this is making sense, there were counters and exchanges that I uh, that I've never seen between these two wrestlers before. It was brilliant, and it was so strange that they had this whole New Japan section shoehorned in there when the rest of the match was so personal to them. It felt anyway, and honestly, I think if they'd shortened the match by a quarter of its runtime and just taken out that that weird false finishing sequence in the third quarter, as I've called it. I think it would have been much better for it. Maybe even a match of the year contender, it would have been that good. I don't know if anybody agrees. For some people, I understand that that New Japan finishing stretch not resulting in the in the in the pinfall maybe elevates the match. And wow, they've thrown everything at each other. But for me, it just felt yeah like an extra chapter that wasn't needed for the overall story. Still, obviously, I should say this was an excellent match. Uh, again, billed as the best of British wrestling against each other, and they definitely proved it. 
What a month of October Zack Sabre Jr. has had, first against Brian, then against Osprey. Yeah, he's having a great 2023 as well. Uh, the the undercard match, or this, like the co-main event, I suppose, I think it was the match immediately before this one, was one that seems to have... Because um, just watching it in a vacuum, it's a brilliant match, but watching it in context, it loses a lot of its charm. That was Tomohiro Ishii versus Shingo Takagi, a real New Japan main event, because this was a New Japan event, of course, but in England, so the crowd were... It was a different crowd, different atmosphere, and to be fair, the crowd were really into it as well, really into it, much more than I was watching at home. And much more than I think a lot of people were watching it at home as well. Because I agree with a lot of the comments I've seen online about this Ishii Shingo match. Saying that it feels like we've seen this match a lot of times in recent memory. Some people were saying about this is about their seventh singles meeting in the past four years. And, and they didn't really necessarily do anything that different to justify it. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's not really one of my matches of the month but I thought it was worth mentioning just as an interesting piece of criticism there. But no, uh, Osprey versus Speedball Impact was great. Osprey versus Zack at, um, at Royal Quest was great. And now we're going to head over. Don't let me shock you by this, but there's been some good wrestling in Japan of all places. I'm kidding. They always have really good m- matches. Rick presents... AJPW 世界最強タッグ決定リーグ戦2023青柳優馬宮原健人組ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ、ああ
kept up a pretty relentless pace throughout. So I thought a singles match between the two astronauts would do the same, but um, not quite. But for the first two thirds of this match, I thought it was amazing. And then the ending was okay. Um, I still massively enjoyed it though, for what it was. Check it out if you haven't seen it already. If you can find out that, I mean, the astronauts are sick boys. The FTR have had a bit of a downturn recently. Maybe astronauts are the best tag team in the world, perhaps? You could definitely, an argument could definitely be made. Don't worry, they made friends after the final bell and they hugged it out. Um, now, remember that story I was talking about? The All Japan tag team match from January, right? That's January tag team match, as I said, right? One side of the equation on one team, Takuya Nomura, one half of astronauts, teaming with the ace of the promotion, Kento Miyahara. Okay, we've got that so far. On the other side, Yuma Aoyagi. He's Kento's rival. They used to be friends. And then Yuma's teaming with a guy called Naoya Nomura. Yes, he's got the same surname as Takuya Nomura. They're not related as far as I can tell. This isn't about the two Nomuras anyway. This is very much about Kento Mihara, the ace of all Japan, and Yuma Aoyagi, his former friend, now massive rival. Now that tag match in January ended with Yuma pinning Kento, which was a surprise because Kento was the champion back then. It was pretty clear they were setting up for a, a big title match between the two for all Japan's top title, the Triple Crown Championship. Also, so that did set up a title match, which Kento won, retaining the belt, which I thought was a bit weird because it seemed like they were setting up Yuma to be the new champion, but I thought, okay, fair enough. It could be a series. Then Kento lost the belt to Yuji Nagata, who, if you don't know, is a New Japan legend, but he's 55 years old. And I found that a really confusing booking decision. Really, really bad as, as well, excuse me. Just because, why wouldn't you have Kento pass the torch to his longtime rival slash friend, one who's just pinned him in a match of the year contender tag team match, but instead you have him pass the torch to an aging legend from a different company? It didn't make, I don't think it made anyone look good, apart from Yuji Nagata, who looked great at 55, being the best guy in a whole promotion. <clears throat> um, so yeah, that was a bit strange. Anyway, Yuma, the losing challenger, finally did get his hands back on the belt, winning it from Yuji Nagata. And now we got a rematch this month between the two actual younger All Japan main event talents, except this time Yuma is the champion and Kento is trying to win it back. So I think it's worked out all right. They might, they've just taken a bit more of a roundabout route than they perhaps needed to. Hey, I remember wanting when I watched this match, Yuma to win the title from Kento back when he failed to do so earlier in the year. Because even though Kendo is the more baby face of the two, he's kind of like Tanahashi. He's very flashy, very arrogant. He knows how good he is. He knows he's the top dog in the promotion. Yuma seems like just a, a bit more sadistic, but just a dangerous ass kicker. And I just found that easier to get on board with because there's no frills. He's just, no, I'm going to beat you up. As Kento was like, look at me preening and prancing. I'm like, oh, stop it. <laughs> I'm, I'm a miserable old man now. This character contrast between the two is shown early on in this match this month when uh, Kento does a clean break in the ropes early on and instead of just giving a respectful little pat, he just backs off and, as I say, prances into the middle of the ring. Whereas when the situation's reversed moments later and it's Yuma allowing the clean break in the ropes, he doesn't clean break at all. He forearms Kento's jaw off, which is brilliant. Um, things obviously then develop into a proper King's Road epic sort of match, escalating into bigger and bigger moments. And I'd say the center point of the match is a pretty terrifying spot on the apron. Um, I'm also going to talk about the result of the match. So do if you're going to watch this, do pause that and watch the match now. Are we all good? Okay, so I'm going to talk about what happened in the post-match angle, which was very interesting indeed. So, Yuma retained. Beating the company's ace, by the way, it's a huge result for Yuma. He's kept the belt in what could potentially be seen as an upset, given how big Kento Mihara is in All Japan. Afterwards, with Kento selling on the outside, here comes none other than the bad boy of Japanese wrestling, as I've called him in the past, Katsuhiko Nakajima from Noah, where he recently left. <laughs> He's now a freelancer. We last mentioned him on this podcast a couple of months ago, beating Kento Miyahara in an intensely fiery personal match because they came up through the ranks together. That took place in Noah, but it was like a Noah versus All Japan main event. And uh, Nakajima won, beating the ace of All Japan. Uh, that match is currently inside my top 10 matches of 2023 as well. Anyway, Nakajima's since left Noah and is a freelancer, but here he is turning up in All Japan 
to seemingly challenge Kento after he thought he was going to win the match. But Kendo's lost the match. So here's Nakajima in a suit with a bunch of flowers, presumably to mockingly give them to Kento. And he sees Kendo selling on the outside and says something in Japanese. I don't know what he said, but I'm assuming it was scathing. Just throws the flowers at him and storms off. And it's like, it's like, I'm, it's like he's disgusted at Kento for not having the decency to win the title so that he can challenge him when he gets to All Japan, which is surely going to set up a big rematch between the two, and I can't wait to see it. I hope it's this year, because it might get in my top 10. Anyway, in terms of Yuma Ayagi's title reign, I'll not say anything. Um, there's been some developments in All Japan since, which I'll talk about next month. Right, let's talk about... Uh, I guess we'll go to Tokyo Joshi Pro for the Princess of Princess Championship match between Mizuki and Mio Yamashita. I'll give it a mention. I don't want to do it any sort of injustice, but I tend to find myself lower on Tokyo Joshi Pro matches than a lot of people seem to online. There'll often be matches that are rated so highly and raved about, and then I'll watch them and I'll think they're very good, but maybe not quite the match of the year contender that a lot of people are saying that they are. Um, I guess they've got very loyal fans. Good for them. Who uh, really get the style of the matches and the, the long-term emotional storylines, which perhaps I don't quite click with as much, which I understand. But often, uh, my issue is more not with um, a lack of emotional connection, because if there's anything Tokyo Joshi Pro wrestlers are good at, it's emoting and getting the crowd invested. It's more the the action sometimes isn't crisp enough for me, especially compared to a promotion like Stardom, which I found myself becoming far more a fan of in the past few years. Um, in terms of Joshi promotions, it's very unoriginal, but I'm more of a stardom guy than I am a, a Tokyo Joshi Pro guy. That's just kind of the way it is. Um, but as for this match, which was described as like the biggest Tokyo Joshi Pro match of 2023, big title match between two huge names. The challenger is probably the most renowned and successful Tokyo Joshi Pro wrestler in the company's history. Even the loyal Tokyo Joshi fans seemed split on this one. Um, I have to say, in terms of feel, I enjoyed it. It nailed that sort of epic big show title match feel. Not the big show. God, imagine if he was there. Oh, I shouldn't joke about that. He's literally coming back to wrestling AW, isn't he? I've read comments saying that this match was either disappointing or the promotions match of 2023. So I'm not sure what to believe. Even though people seem split on the match's quality, which I found to be great, but maybe a little bit lacking at times, uh, everyone's split on how good the match was. Nobody seems that split on being unhappy with the booking decision. Again, I'm going to spoil the match result, I'm sorry. So, Miyu Yamashita wins the title back. I think she's now like a four-time champion or something. And she's apparently going to be appearing in MLW for a bit of the foreseeable future, which is great for her. Maybe not great for Tokyo Joshi Pro that they're going to have essentially an absentee champion going forwards for a while. Um, also, Mizuki seemed like a popular champion. She only had three title defenses, I believe, in about 200-odd days. And now the belt's back in the hands of the promotion's most decorated and successful champion, which I guess might be the reason the Tokyo Joshi Pro fans have turned on it a little bit, because they've, they've kind of seen it all before with her. So I guess what I'm trying to say in summary is that this feels like the least or the less adventurous of the two potential booking decisions in this match. I still thought it was a good match and definitely worth checking out, but I understand why even the usually very loyal fans of this promotion might be a little bit underwhelmed due to the booking of this one. Right. I mean, there's, there's one place left to go that we haven't been yet, isn't there, in the wrestling world? And it's not just the USA, because Mexico is involved as well. It's time to go to North America. Why? I've noticed Tom uses that Alan Partridge thing. And I do a Brian Butterfield voice for some reason. I can't do a part. North America. I can't do Partridge. It's time to I'll just Butterfield it. It's time to go to North America. Central America. This isn't just some game. Professional wrestling's my life. And the AEW world title is my livelihood and my legacy. This symbolizes all my blood, my sweat, my tears, my hard work. Kenny Omega is going to test how much that title means to Max. MJF already has the title. Can he take the record from Omega? Maybe you weren't the man that you think that you are. That you don't have what it takes on the inside to be a guy like Kenny Omega. You're the future of this industry, but I'm still here. You got me standing in front of you. I want that belt, Max, and I reserve the right to defend my streak. The cleaner versus the devil for the AEW 
AEW World Championship. May the best man win. I am fully aware of how big this match is. One place to start, really. MJF versus Kenny Omega for the AW World Championship on AW Collision. A TV match which could have main evented any pay-per-view of the calendar year, probably. It's certainly an AW. First and foremost, all right, this was a great, great TV main event. But I don't know if it really hit the heights of a top pay-per-view match it could have been. And I think the reason for that, in my opinion at least, was that even through all the big moments, even though all of those big moments delivered and were great parts of the match, I don't think they all knit together necessarily very cleverly, if that makes sense. So the table spot, for example, was clearly amazing. Uh, but I hate the fact that the next thing they did, the next portion of the match, was a strike exchange. That table spot should have had Kenny well on top and MJF fighting for his life. It's not like MJF had dished out a boatload of punishment to Kenny up until that point and then the table spot evened it out. I think the table spot should have really put Kenny on top and MJF fighting to keep a hold of his title just to survive. Obviously, the finishing stretch of the match was thrilling. It was kind of a near-fall kick-out fest. Not that I'm necessarily opposed to that sort of thing when it's done right, uh, and I think it was probably justified here, especially given the stakes of the match. You know, not just the title on the line, but the 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 prize, I guess, of being the longest reigning AEW World Champion. So in this instance, I don't agree with the criticism that there were too many kickouts down the stretch because I think under the circumstances, you could perfectly justify that. My issue more lay with how the match knit together or didn't effectively. Um, so I think it suffered from the stuff between the big moments and I think the stuff that's more indicative of a wider AEW problem as well, which I talked about at the start of this podcast. So it wasn't just the stuff in the match that led to the match quality suffering a little bit. I'm really, I don't want to be playing this match down too much because as, as I say, it was a very, very good TV main event. Um, but when you think of MJF versus uh, Kenny Omega, have I been saying Adam Cole? I'm worried that I've been saying Adam Cole. When you think of MJF versus Kenny Omega anyway, you think of like, an easy match of the year contender, blow away, six-star match. And for me, it just wasn't that. But it wasn't just the stuff in the match that that drew back from it a little bit. It was also the stuff that Matthew talked about, for example, on the weekly Cultaholic podcast, which was the lack of build and the fact that there's too much going on in AW right now and it's all very short-term and haphazard. And yes, they had to get this match out of the way before full gear because you had to have the longest reigning thing as a, as a, a kind of a... Uh, a weight hanging over it but you you could still have had the match at a pay-per-view at the previous pay-per-view for example if you'd thought to build to it in time you know uh, I get that AEW's been hampered by a lot of injuries and stuff and they haven't had the easiest time and they've had to change booking plans but also you've just got to say it, it doesn't feel like they've handled it very well and it feels like m certain matches anyway aren't given the spotlight that they truly deserve and this was very much one of them because these are two of the biggest stars in world wrestling, definitely outside of WWE. And they, as, they, they should have been main eventing a pay-per-view. What's going on? Why doesn't MJF main event pay-per-views any, anyway? I don't know. It was a good match. I enjoyed it. Um, let's go to Mexico for a second and talk about CMLL's match between Mystico and Templario. Two out of three falls, just on their weekly, um, I think it's called Super Viernes, which is that Tuesday in Spanish? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's been years since I studied Spanish, and I've forgotten almost all of it. Those aguas minerales, por favor. This match was great, though. Two out of three falls, as big matches in CMLL often are. That's not an unusual stipulation, but it was used very well here. First of all, Mystico is as over as I, way more over than I thought. I knew he was over in Mexico and was like a big main event for CMLL, but I didn't realize this much. He's the original Sin Cara, if you didn't know. Um... Really over, going up against the bigger, stronger, but still very agile Templario, who is a heel, um, or Rudo as they call it in Mexican wrestling. Um, and they, so from what I can understand, the way that these two out of three four match, falls matches typically go in Mexico is that the heel will often win the first fall, and then the face has to fight bravely back, win the second fall, and then we get whichever, ma whichever man wins the match, wins the match. Now, they subverted that here. And it worked because it was very unique. Mystico ran to the ring, dived into it, onto Templario. The crowd goes wild because it's their hero going, going for it. 
wins the first fall in about a minute. And then Templario has to dig deep and fight back. And then the heel wins the second fall. And now it's looking bad for Mystico in the deciding fall because the heel's carrying all the momentum into it. But then Mystico fights back and ultimately wins the match. And I just thought the structure of it was very clever. As I've noted on this podcast before, Lucha Libre isn't necessarily my preferred style of wrestling just because I feel like they prioritize doing crazy athletic stuff, which a lot of a lot of CMLL wrestlers absolutely can, by the way. Like, the promotion is chock full of talent, as is AAA. But, just to name the two big Mexican promotions there, but I often feel like the big athletic moves and stuff are sacrificed or are, are, are prioritized way too highly over psychology and storytelling and all that boring stuff. But that's just more the wrestling I like rather than who can do the most flips. And, and I understand that spotty, flippy matches absolutely have their place. And while this certainly was more towards that end of the spectrum than most of the matches I've talked about, it still had a story. So I can excuse all the flips and everything, doing all the moves under the sun, because it it was underpinned by a strong structure. And I really liked it. And as a bonus, the crowd were really hot for it as well. So again, I don't know if Lucha Libre... I, I mean, you've got various types of Lucha Libre. Obviously, you've got comedy, you've got these bloody main events, often mask versus mask or whatever. But in terms of your kind of standard athletic, acrobatic Lucha Libre, I don't know if that'll ever truly be for me. But when it's, like I say, when it's underpinned by a strong sense of storytelling like this one was, then I can fully get on board. But yeah, we should talk about the two Gunter matches as well. Gunter versus Bronson Reed first. Big lad match on Raw. Both these matches, by the way, I wish didn't have commercial breaks because it really does disrupt the flow. They both should have been pay-per-view matches. I don't know why Gunter, like MJF, I don't know why Gunter's prominence on pay-per-views has been diminished recently because he's one of the best things about WWE at the minute. But anyway, the Bronson rematch was fantastic. Loved it. Loved the two big lads, big ladding it up there in the ring. Um, but I preferred slightly the Champa match, which um, I just thought reminded me how good Champa is. It's been too long. And I know that he's had a lot of injury woes and everything, and fair play to him for battling back and getting back to be an active wrestler again. But it's been too long since he's been allowed the opportunity to have a match like this. Because I think he's probably he's probably the greatest NXT champion ever. Certainly top two. You could say maybe Adam Cole, I get. I don't know. Not, uh, Bobby Roode had a good reign. Nakamura had a good reign. But I think in terms of action, character stuff, I think Champ is up there. He might be the greatest NXT champion of all time. Let me know what you think, actually. But anyway, no, uh, I, I love this match. Champa as the... It's weird to think of someone so vicious and scary as the underdog babyface, but he can play that role to perfection as well. Battering Gunther with chops and really fearless. We've seen people be kind of overwhelmed by Gunther. And until the end, you never got that sense in this match with Champa, because he was so brave and so vicious. It was brilliant to watch. Champa's so easy, excuse me, so easy to get on board with. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought it was brilliant stuff. Never really thought in either of these matches, the Bronson one or the Champa one, that Gunther was going to lose the belt. But it didn't really get too much in the way of, of my enjoyment of the match. So yeah, thought they were great. Wish they'd been pay-per-view matches, both of them. And that's... Um, I think, oh my, that's all we have. Right, let's get on to my lists of the, the month and the year. What do I normally say? The rundown. Let's do the rundown of, let's look at my best matches of, of October and then 2023. So my top 10 matches of October. Number 10, I've just mentioned it, Gunter versus Bronson Reed. Number nine, MJF versus Kenny Omega. Should have been higher I feel a bit harsh, but it didn't click fully for me. Number eight, Gunter versus Tommaso Ciampa. Number seven, Christian Cage versus Darby Allen in that terrifying two out of three falls match at WrestleDream. Uh, number six, Impact Bound for Glory, Will Ospreay versus Speedball Mike Bailey. Number five, Fuminori Abe versus Takuya Nomura. The astronauts explode. Uh, number four, Yuma Aoyagi defending that Triple Crown Championship against his former friend, now heated rival, Kento Miyahara. Number three, it's uh, Royal Quest, Will Ospreay versus Zack Sabre Jr. Number two, Hangman Adam Page versus Swerve Strickland at WrestleDream. I feel like I might have overrated that one slightly, but I don't care because I loved it. And number one, 
Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. again from WrestleDream. It may have impacted that top 10, you know. Let's find out. So the overall top 10 as it stands. Number 10, let's go to Stardom for Siri versus Suzu Suzuki. Number 9, it's made it. Hangman Adam Page versus Swerve Strickland from WrestleDream. Number 8, another AW match. FTR in that staggeringly long, excellent 2 out of 3 falls match against Bullet Club Gold. Number 7, Tomohiro Ishii versus Luke Jacobs at Rev Pro. Number 6, that All Japan tag match I referenced so much in this episode. Kento Mihara and Takuya Nomura versus Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Number 5, Katsuko Nakajima versus Kento Mihara in Noah, a match that we could see uh, ran back pretty damn soon now that Nakajima appears to be in All Japan. Uh, number four, Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega 1 from Wrestle Kingdom. Number three, Kenny Omega versus Will Ospreay from Forbidden Door. Number two, Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. from Wrestle Dream, which means that number one just still, and I agonized over that decision, but number one is still the triple threat IC title match from WrestleMania. Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drewy, 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 Drewy McIntyre. So there you have it. That was my matches of the month for October 2023. I'll be back, hopefully with a clearer throat at the end of November. Again, I do apologize. And, and I apologize to Tom, who I, I assume will have cut out a lot of coughing and spluttering throughout this one. Uh, big thank you to Tom, as always, for editing this series. And congratulations again, man, on ring announcing that Impact Tour. And he's going to be back for the Impact, or the TNA Tour, I should say, of 2024 as well. Um, and thank you all for listening, of course. If you have any match recommendations, hit me up on Twitter at JackTheJobber. And I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And I'll see you next week. Cheers for listening and have a good one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.